You're listening to E-Commerce Marketing School, presented by Privy and Printful. Okay, so it's the last week of 2021, and to celebrate, we're bringing back some of our favorite interviews of the year to share success stories and inspire you heading into 2022. Today's episode is with none other than Shopify's president, Harley Finkelstein. As one of the best storytellers out there, probably in the world, Harley gives an absolute masterclass on what it takes to craft a timeless story that resonates with your audience. Because whether you're selling hats or supplements, you need to tell a story and build connections to win. Welcome back, everyone. Throwing you a curveball today and bringing on a major surprise guest. I'm here with Harley Finkelstein. Harley doesn't need much of an intro, but in case you haven't watched his show, Life of the Rebel, or listened to other podcasts that he's been on, Harley's the former founder of an apparel business while he was in law school, and now he's arming the rebels and independent businesses in his role as president of Shopify. Harley, amazing having you on the show. And it is so great to be here. I think it is worthwhile maybe leaking a little bit to people that are are watching and listening a bit about our introduction before we hit the record button. And you said, you know, you were so gracious and said, you know, thanks for being on the show. And I, what I said to you was, I'll just, I'll say it verbatim again, if I can remember it. But I said, you know, obviously I think what you and the guys at Privy are doing is, is amazing. I think the Privy folks are just, you guys kick ass and, and you do some really great things and you're part of this incredible community of Shopify partners, but you guys just hustle harder than anybody. And that is why you know, I wrote the intro to the book. That's the reason why when you ask me to come on the podcast, I say yes. It just, in many ways, it feels very reminiscent of how we operated Shopify in the early days where we simply just outworked everybody else. Um, We didn't have an unfair advantage, neither do you. We were smart about it, I think, and so were you. We were clever. We tried to add value and be impactful, but we just worked really, really hard and you folks all do that. And it, it's inspiring to watch that at Privy. And it's, it's, it's been a wonderful journey uh, for me on a personal level to see your growth. Thanks, man. I mean, I think we should just end the podcast here. <laughs> that was perfect. No, that's incredible to hear. And, you know, from my end, I mean, we, we launched Privy for Shopify in 2015. And so, you know, I've been following you personally ever since. And I feel like from you and Toby, I, I've learned a lot as a founder And one of the things that I actually wanted to dive into today with you is around how hard you work at storytelling, right? I think you're probably, you know, you are the best storyteller in the commerce landscape. And, you know, I think back to Snow Devil, Rebels, Resilient, like I'm just throwing out terms, independent businesses, now Life of the Rebel, right? Even just like how I think it was Tim Ferriss in the early days mentioned to you about how your job is to inspire entrepreneurship, right? So like, is that a big part of your role is spending time on story? I think that's the majority of my role. I think that's been the majority of my role since I walked in the door at Shopify almost like 12 years ago. I was a Shopify merchant early on in 2006 or so. I set up a store on Shopify, met Toby and Daniel and Cody. And these were like three of the smartest people I'd ever met. And I needed a way to transition having a wholesale business to a direct-to-consumer retail business online. And so I started using Shopify. I knew Toby uh, and I met him at a startup sort of meetup here in Ottawa. And I was blown away by the superpower that was the Shopify technology, that was the Shopify software. I think the problem was most people didn't know that when you add Shopify to an ambitious human, 
you get a business, you get this incredible venture, you get this opportunity to share your gift, your product, your whatever with the world. And so even in the early days of Shopify, you know, go back to 2010, I sort of always looked at my role there as taking this piece of software that these brilliant product focused founders had built and making sure that people understood why using Shopify was such a great idea, why Shopify was the ticket to unlocking all of their ambition, all of their aspiration. I heard this great story years ago. I know it's in a book. I think it's in The Innovator's Dilemma or one of the Clayton Christensen books, but it really, I actually didn't read it in the book. I actually heard it from Clayton. I was invited to some conference. I think it was like the, an eBay conference in like 2011 or something. And Clayton Christensen was speaking. And you know he famously was that Harvard professor, you know, the author of The Innovator's Dilemma. And then I think The Innovator's Solution, a few other books. But he told the story of being hired by McDonald's that his consulting group was hired by McDonald's to figure out an anomaly. And the anomaly was McDonald's was really pushing milkshakes at that time. And the expectation was that milkshakes, uh, milkshake sales would peak either after lunch or after dinner. But that wasn't the case. Milkshake sales were peaking at around, I think it was like six o'clock in the morning. And McDonald's with all their data and all their, you know, they have massive teams and all their money couldn't figure this out. And so they hired Clayton and his team to come in and, and understand what the heck was going on here. Why were they selling so many milkshakes in the morning? And so Clayton did his thing and him and his team went to work. And they came back to the McDonald's executive team and said, what is the job of the milkshake? And, you know, someone said, well, a delicious treat. Someone said, you know, cold beverage. Someone said something to satisfy your sweet tooth, whatever, you know, whatever those obvious things would be. And Clayton said, no, that, that's not the job of the milkshake, at least not for the demographic that's buying it early in the morning, which is becoming a disproportionate amount of sales. The job of the milkshake for the people that were buying at six o'clock in the morning was to keep them company. It was basically like having a friend for 45 minutes you can spend time with. And it turned out that a lot of the consumers of those early morning milkshakes were commuters and truck drivers. Hmm. And the reason that they were ordering milkshakes at that hour was unlike a regular beverage, a water, uh, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever it is, it takes a while to consume a milkshake. And so it was almost like an activity. You can turn on your favorite music or your favorite talk radio show or whatever you were doing during your commute. And the milkshake was with you for, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes. And I remember hearing that story and being completely blown away by it. I was taken by it because it meant that here you have this huge company called McDonald's, one of the biggest companies on the planet with all their data analysts, with all their marketers and salespeople and product people and engineers, all these people there. And they couldn't figure out why people were buying so many milkshakes at 6 a.m. And it turned out that they were unaware of what the job their product was being hired to do. It was not as a tasty beverage. It was not to quench your thirst or to satisfy your sweet tooth. It was to accompany you on a journey, whether it's a commute or it's part of your job to take product from point A to point B as a truck driver. And that's sort of the same thing I think today about storytelling, about whether it's direct to consumer e-commerce or it's about any technology business. You can have the greatest product in the world, but if no one understands the why or the job that, that product is being hired to satisfy, you don't really understand the puts and takes of your business. And so the discovery for me at Shopify was, I think we have the best product in the world. And I think that we have this sort of inherent, perpetual, deep dissatisfaction with Shopify because we always think it could be better. And that's the reason why 
I think you see so much innovation come out of Shopify. There is this perpetual unsatisfaction. We always believe that we we can make it better and improve it and expand it and add more value and add more impact. And whether it's fulfillment or capital or it's expanding, you know, what it means to build a beautiful, scalable online store, all those things give us an opportunity. But in order to, in order to fully appreciate that opportunity, you actually have to package it around a story, which is that Shopify is not a technology company. It's not a software company. It's actually the entrepreneurship company. It is a company that allows people and enables people to achieve their own unique version of success, whether that's Ben Francis building a billion-hour brand with Gymshark, or that's having a family business to go into if you're Mike D's barbecue sauce, and anyone in between. And that's the reason why I think storytelling is so damn important, but no one really has a degree in storytelling. No one really has a degree. You can have a degree in marketing. You can have a degree in design. You can have a degree in creative design, but no one really understands storytelling as well as the people that are closest to it, which is why you can tell the best story with Privy far better than I can. But the reason you tell such a good story with Privy is not because of the functionality that Privy provides. It is what does Privy allow your users to accomplish? What is well, the we, job Privy is being hired to do? Well, and that's one, the reason why storytelling is so damn important. Yeah. So I actually didn't quite understand that until our new marketing team came in and just hammered that into me. And then I watched, you know, basically like they would just, a big part of their day early on was just riffing on the story. So, you know, just turning it back to you, like, what what is the process like? Like, are you just like locking yourself in a room and you're saying, hey, you know, every couple of years, like things are shifting or every year things shift, right? And like you're whiteboarding to yourself or do you have a team that you're working on this with? Like, what's your approach to story? A lot of it is trial and error or experimentation. I do a lot of media. I speak to a lot of people. I'm communicating almost on an hourly basis with merchants over text, you know, our top merchants, but also a merchant that just started yesterday. I'm actually doing a, later on today, I'm going to do an Instagram live with a friend of mine, this great Canadian restaurateur named Steve Bechta, iconic Canadian restaurant. He's sort of like the Danny Meyer of Canada. And 12 months ago to the day, Canada got shut down because of COVID. And Steve and I had a conversation on, on IG live. And I was like, Hey, like, what's the pivot here? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, what are you going to do now that your restaurants are all closed? And he's like, well, maybe I can try meal kits. And this episode is going to air after that so I can disclose that. But he has created a seven-figure meal kit business on the backs of like during COVID, a brand new seven-figure business after having to close his restaurants. So I'm always talking to merchants. I'm always talking to media and stakeholders, whether it's Wall Street investors or it's Jim Cramer or it's doing great podcasts like this. And I'm experimenting with things. I wasn't sure whether or not I would tell the entire Clayton Christensen McDonald's story because I usually talk about the job and I don't really go deep in it. But knowing you, Ben, a little bit, I thought, hey, let me experiment and see whether or not I can spend what was probably four and a half minutes telling the actual Clayton Christensen McDonald's you know, story, milkshake story. And if people like that story, I may use it again. If people are like, yeah, we, we know that story. Everyone listening to this particular program knows has read that book. I probably won't use it again. And by doing it, you see what resonates. And so in the early days, it was all about Shopify is really easy to use to build a beautiful online store and can be incredibly scalable. And then it turned into, well, the future retail is retail everywhere. So maybe we're more than just an e-commerce provider, maybe a retail operating system. 
And then it turned out that we were watching small businesses grow really large on our platform without any ceiling whatsoever in terms of a cap on their growth. And then it was like, okay, can we be the entrepreneurship company? Is that something that can resonate? And by doing that, you begin to create a real story. The key, however, is like a living tree, your story needs to evolve. It has to be dynamic. And the companies that I think that are really good in the early stages where, you know, they're founder led and there's a lot of energy and they're sort of in that quote unquote startup phase. At some point, not always, certainly at Shopify, we're, you know, we're pretty much the same group that's been there from day one, but at a lot of companies, you know, some new adult supervision comes in to run the company and they're still using the old story, even though the product has evolved, the customer has evolved and the job that that particular product is being hired to do has evolved, but they're still using the old story because they're not storytellers. And so that idea of being dynamic means you have to keep changing your story. There may be a point where online stores uh, and offline stores, you do not necessarily make the distinction. Like you would never say, I am watching a color TV today. It's just a TV because who is not watching color TV? So at some point, I may have to also evolve from talking about online retail and commerce versus offline or point of sale versus the online store because it may not make sense. And so that evolution process, I think, is really, really important. But a lot of that I do, I see someone saying something like, that's interesting. Let me experiment with it. And I try to kind of like any good software hacker, I try to hack away at what is going to resonate and land the best with the intended audience. So one of the things that I coach our brands a lot about is this, because I think it's easier to like deploy a tactic to grow. It's easier to sit down and just like send an email right to your your customer base than it is to like put yourself out there the way that you are, iterate on a message and a story, be willing to just be met with deaf ears, fall on your face and try again, which I know hasn't really happened to you lately, but like that's- oh, wait, it, it, Please, that's a dangerous narrative. It does happen. I right, do good. have bad interviews. I do have bad talks. I do have bad- podcast, you know, dynamics like this, it doesn't always go that well. What I'm trying to do, in fact, my barometer for what a home run is right now is really, really high. So I I was on Mad Money two weeks ago, and I kind of hijacked the show by bringing a merchant on with me. The Mad Money producers were told that, but only about an hour before the show was going to air. I was like, let me see what happens if I do a Hail Mary and I bring on a merchant who otherwise would never get access to that massive audience that CNBC has. What would happen? So the advantage is it's very clear that we're giving one of our merchants this huge platform, which they may not be able to get on their own. Two is it shows how deeply we care about small business that we're willing. In fact, we want to give up our own airtime for them. So I, I do have those bad situations and, and, and I do take those risks, but again, I'm not scared to fail. And I think what you're, what you're sort of alluding to Ben is that the email is what I would do if this was a job for me, but hmm. because this is more than a job for me and certainly is for you as well, this is my life. This is my life's work. I'm not necessarily going to take the safe routes. I don't think playing the finite game is that fun. I think playing the infinite game where the whole goal is to get to do more of this is far more interesting than doing, you know, what I know is going to work. I think that's going to be boring. And and frankly, that's not the life I want to live. And I I think Shopify deserves more than that from their leaders. Yeah, I love it. And, And I do think 
what falls out of like a well-crafted and iterated story is that it becomes easier to craft the headline on the Shopify homepage, the message, you know, on the blog or on social media, like everything becomes easier in the company for your brand, whether you're selling, you know, D2C or whatever, or you're a tech company like Shopify, if someone is owning the story. Yep. And that comes with risks. Look, there are some people, I have a ton of empathy for this, who grew up in a place where the idea or the nomenclature of a rebel is incredibly derogatory, mm. is incredibly off-putting and incredibly, there's a negative connotation to it. Interesting. And you got to balance that. You have to, you know, if you just take the term, you know, some companies are trying to build an empire and Shopify is arming the rebels. So then you have to sort of do the mental math and say, okay, well, is this, it's compelling because people are going to talk about it, but does it go too far? And if it goes too far, then that's not the right thing. But if it goes far enough to the edge, whereby the vast majority of people will appreciate the direction you are taking and the amount of people that will be offended by it or the amount of offense they will take is mitigated, that's probably a pretty good place to be. If you go too far, you're just kind of a jerk and you're insensitive. Yeah. And if you don't go far enough, you're going to effectively Irrelevant. be invisible. So yeah. finding out how far you can take these things is really, really important. And that in itself, I think, keeps the idea of being a storyteller so interesting. And if you actually, I mean, you know, the best storyteller that I know, who's I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to call a very good friend and a mentor is Seth Godin. Seth is the greatest storyteller I've ever met. Right now, he's doing a series on Facebook Live where he's just talking to chocolate makers. I say just talking to chocolate makers because Seth can talk to, you know, presidents of countries and rock stars and he's talking to chocolate makers but he loves chocolate really good high quality chocolate and he loves to understand the story behind them and so he has sort of done the calculus that well he really wants to do this it may not be overly controversial to talk to chocolate makers but it also may not appeal to the long tail of seth godin fans and he's okay with that because he knows that his 1,000 or 2 million true fans will really resonate with those types of conversations. And so the best storytellers I know are very measured in, in what they say and how they say and who they say it to. But all of them share the same commonality, which is that there's an incredible amount of courage uh, that they bring to their craft. Amazing. So basically the people listening are, you know, Shopify brand owners or on other platforms, but they're all kind of small businesses. Like, mm -hmm. What, what would you kind of say, you know, how, how would you recommend someone get started on crafting kind of a, a more strategic narrative for the brand? I'm wearing that story right now. So I've been wearing black t-shirts for the majority of my life. I left the practice of law. I was a lawyer for 10 months in 2009, hated it, left to join Toby. And I've basically been wearing black t-shirts ever since. In the winters in Canada, it gets a bit chilly. So wearing a t-shirt all day is not great. So I sort of shifted over to wearing kind of black hoodies in the winter and or sort of winter and, and sort of the um, spring season, fall season when it's cold and the rest of the time wearing a black t-shirt. Well, at some point, someone reached out to me, Lindy from Blue Salt, who makes this hoodie and said, hey, I know you like black hoodies. We make the greatest black hoodie. Why don't you check it out? And she sends me one and I try it on. I'm like, damn, this is, it's comfortable. It's machine washable. It's kind of like a machine washable cashmere. It fits well. It doesn't peel. It just, it looks great. I was like, great, I'll buy 10 of them. I bought 10 of them and I wore 10 of those. And then she writes me again. She says, hey, uh, you're wearing them a lot. I see them all over TV every time you're on. Like, I love that. She's like, is there a way for us to make it more uniquely you? And I was like, well, I don't know. What do you have in mind? She's like, I don't know. Like, 
an accent. I was like, well, you know, I kind of like orange. There's some orange in my office and I think orange is kind of a cool color. I was like, can we just do the strings in orange? Is that possible? She's like, yeah. So she sent it to me as well. And so I don't really talk about the black t-shirts that I wear, although I've said, I mean, they're James Purse t-shirts. There's no secret the t-shirts I wear, but I talk a lot about blue salt. And the reason I talk a lot about blue salt is because now there's a story to my relationship with this piece of clothing that I wear. There's a dynamic. I have this connection to them. Now, I don't know whether or not her doing accents for everyone that wears these hoodies is a scalable marketing tactic. Maybe it's not, but it, it worked for me. And now I talk about Blue Salt fairly often in a lot of different venues because of they took a product and made it personal to me. And that I think is the entirety of how great brands, whether you're selling software or you're selling a hoodie or a product, that is the greatest way in my view to actually build a real community, to build real audiences. It doesn't have to be for everyone, but find a couple people who will not only be your customers, they will be your ambassadors, they will be your force multipliers, they will be your megaphones. And if you do it in a way that feels really authentic in the way that Lindy and Blue Salt did for me, it's going to resonate. And I, I just randomly, like she sells out of these black hoodies a lot right now. And it's not all because of me, because she, she's done this a couple alert. of times. But she's created this flywheel of momentum. And another example, you know, I was on this great uh, show this past summer, summer 2020, called uh, I Quit. It was a show on Discovery where we mentored a bunch of merchants. And one of the merchants that won was Mike D from Mike D's Barbecue Sauce. He is a first-time entrepreneur. He's trying to build this really great barbecue sauce company. And anytime he sees, not just me, but frankly, anybody on Instagram making a barbecue, he'll engage and say, hey, you don't have to buy my sauce, but... Just so you know, adding tinfoil and putting a couple, you know, uh, fork indentations in the tinfoil will help you smoke your meat in a much better way. Hmm. And he does this in a way that, again, it's not scalable in terms of, you know, doing it to a million people, but he's done it enough that people are like, this guy, Mike, just wants to be helpful. He really is obsessed with barbecue. His barbecue sauce is probably pretty good. Let me go ahead and buy his barbecue sauce. And so those are the companies, and I'm, I'm not talking about Fashion Over or Gymshark or Allbirds or you know, Beyond Yogurt, all the brands you often hear me talk about as, as these hunger and successors. I'm talking about two companies that are fairly not, they're not that well-known. Blue Salt and, and Mike D's Barbecue are not that well-known, but they found a way to connect with their consumer in a way that is incredibly, it's timeless. It'll yeah. continue and it'll get deeper over time. And I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, there's a brand that my wife and I buy from called Baraka Shea Butter. And the founder talks about like, the, the village and the families in the village that actually like create the soaps. And it's so weird. Like it, it literally you're in the shower not to get graphic, but like you're using the soap and you're actually thinking about that story, you know, because like it's not just soap, right? It's not just soap. Exactly. It's this unique thing. I'm drinking coffee out of my Ember mug um, nice. right there, which nice. I love. If Ember just marketed to me. I don't know the Ember folks are on Shopify and they're a huge success, but I don't know them. I never met them, never spoken to them. If Ember marketed to me and said, Hey, we make this cup that, you know, has a battery in it. So it keeps it warm for a while. I would think that was interesting, but not necessarily that compelling. But what got me to buy an Ember was on a podcast like this, I was drinking my coffee out of a mug and the interviewer was drinking out of an Ember. And I said, Oh, what's that? And they said, well, it's an Ember mug. And I was like, Oh, do you like it? And they're like, well, I sit at my desk for a long time. 
And generally the first 30% of my coffee drinking or tea drinking experience is excellent. It's fantastic. But the last 70% sucks because it gets to room temperature and then it gets cold. And I, I just keep drinking it. And I was like, yeah, me too. Just if it gets, I was like, I, I wish it was always consistently the same temperature. And so that person that convinced me to buy Ember didn't actually work for Ember, but they told me this story, which was their own unique story. And I'm like, and now I tell everyone that sits at their desk and enjoys drinking, particularly drip coffee. Because if you drink espresso, it's more of an instant thing. It doesn't take that long. But if you drink drip coffee, not having an Ember is probably going to result in having a worse coffee drinking experience, no matter what. So um, true. So I think storytelling is something that is really, really important, whether you call it brand or marketing or say, I don't care what you call it. If you are selling a product or a service, you got to storytell. And one of the examples that I always think about is, is something as basic as dentists, that we all have a dentist and most of our dentists to us it's like a utility. We don't re- like, we want a good dentist. We want a dentist who has, you know, we can get appointments, clean office. They have to be competent. But then every now and then I, we have two small t- children. We have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, uh, Zoe and Bailey. My wife and I, uh, Lindsay and I are always sort of, we want the kids need to go see a dentist. And so we went ahead and we started looking around asking friends about a dentist. And one particular dentist in Ottawa, uh, where we live, happened to have just this amazing kids experience. You walk in and there's like cartoons on the wall and there's like a TV built into the ceiling. So the kids, and so that dentist, whether or not she believes this, she is telling a story that this particular dental practice is better for children because we're going to create an experience for them. And we're going to make it a lot more fun than just going to some. So I don't think you just have to be a cool startup or a great DTC brand or a hundred billion dollar software company to believe storytelling is important. I think anything you do, storytelling needs to be the forefront of it. And those that understand it, it's almost like it's just natural. It's obvious to them, but a lot of people miss that. I think it's incredible. And it's something I've been preaching forever. Like, you know, no tactic will be as powerful as a great story. And that's from the founder, but then that's also from customers. Like you said, that go and, and transfer that on and, and help with the word of mouth, which is what every, you know, everyone should be aspiring for. So yeah. I, I retweeted is, something last night. Uh, someone that you and I both know Kelly from Taproom. Uh, oh yeah. She's great. Is, is just amazing. She's the and best. Incredibly inspiring and so kind and just an amazing entrepreneur. Someone that we all really admire. Um, and she posts this thing. She's like, you know, I, I love talking to other Shopify partners about their business and exchanging kind of notes and, and it doesn't feel competitive. It feels very collaborative there is no way that I can ever do a nearly as good of a job of explaining the collegiality and the collaboration and the energy that is the Shopify partner ecosystem in a way that people are going to digest as well as Kelly could, who doesn't work at Shopify. So, so it's not just necessarily you need to do storytelling as, as the founder or, or as a leader. If your customers are storytelling or your partners are storytelling in your behalf, man, that's, that's when things get really, really interesting. Yeah. No, that's amazing. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this. I think it'll be really good inspiration for everyone listening. And hopefully they take the time now to really like craft that story and think about the why. Awesome. Harley, thank you, man. This was amazing. Thanks Thanks for coming on. 